Hey guys, welcome back to Joko Yo. And today's episode is sort of like a continuation of the previous one, but not really. Uh, you know what? It's actually a really loose association. Well, okay. It's never mind. Just getting on with it because this story just as good as the last. In May Precisely May 15 of 1970, Thelonious Monk and wife flew into Raleigh-Durham Airport to do a 10-day series of shows at the Frog and Nightgown nightclub. Now, if you don't know the Frog, as it was affectionately called back in the old days, the Frog was the only club that regularly hosted major acts between Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, Georgia. And it started out as a club just off Dixie Trail in Raleigh, but it moved to the underground in Cameron Village in the early 70s. If you want more information about the Cameron Village underground, uh, go check out the episode Whatever Happened to Saturday Night, courtesy of Joe Coyo. Sorry, shameless plug. The Frog had booked Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, Stan Getz, Dave Brubeck, and in 1970... Rocky Mountain native Thelonious Monk, again, 10-day series of shows at the Frog in Raleigh. Now, Monk's band was kind of cool. I mean, of course, he's a Rocky Mountain native, but his band was littered with North Carolinians, even though they all met up in New York City. Like, Monk's band had Lou Donaldson from Baden, and Max Roach was from Scotland Neck, and and North Carolina is full of that kind of good stuff, man. Like, now if you know this or not, but James Brown's from South Carolina, but most of his band, the JBs, came out of Kinston. So, it's not unheard of. But where this story picks up is not to follow the life of Thelonious Monk. No, not at all. That was done in the previous episode, Monk's Dream. This one goes into a slightly different direction because during that 10-day stand at the Frog, he was within 50 miles of a whole other group of monks whose family and his were very closely intertwined. But to get there, we got to go back a while because, you know, that's what... That's how history works. See, James Monk, this is going back a while. James Monk was part of a massive Scottish migration to North Carolina in the late 1760s and early 1770s. There was a vacant throne in the in the mid-1700s. According to some Scots, it was a vacant throne in the British monarchy, and many Scots thought at that in the 1750s, the rightful king should be Charles Stuart, the grandson of former King Charles James, or I'm sorry, King James II. This event has also been covered a few times this podcast, and it heavily affected North Carolina history in a ridiculous number of ways. Many Scots saw Charles Stuart, as they call him Bonnie Prince Charlie, as the rightful heir to the English throne. Now, the English called him the Young Pretender. Basically, that shows you what the English thought of his claim to the throne. In either case, many Scots raised money to pay for an army to secure the throne for Bonnie Prince Charlie, and many Scots were willing to fight for this cause. Well, they lost. And that's why many Scots fled Scotland. 
you know, it's kind of hard to be in a, to be safe in a place where the rulers see you as traitors. So they came to America, sort of fleeing. Many came to North Carolina because the governor at the time himself was Scottish, Gabriel Johnston. And he offered them pardons if they came and contributed to the North Carolina economy. And they did, starting communities all over the Cape Fear region and in the Sandhills. One of them was James Monk. Same last name as Thelonious. In 1824, James Monk's son, Archibald, married, married Harriet Hargrove in Newton Grove, North Carolina, on the Johnston border. And in 1829, Harriet's father gifted the new couple, well, if you can give a person, gifted the new couple a young female slave named Cheney. And five years later, another person kept in slavery was given to them, the whatever, but his name was John Jack. They were sent from one household to the next. By 1860, Archibald was wealthy, very, very wealthy. He was a local political leader, a plantation owner, and he claimed ownership of 19 slaves. I would be lying if I said that he was a reluctant slave owner like Thomas Jefferson claimed to be. You know, one that said that slavery was wrong, but he was sort of stuck in it. Yeah, that's that he couldn't afford to free them even though he wanted to? No, that, that was not Archibald Monk. Well, two of his slaves were Hinton and Isaac, the sons of John Jack. One of Archibald's sons was named John Carr, the second of 11 children. Now, the story's going to split right here because Hinton is going to later on, um, his grandson is going to be Thelonious, but one of Archibald's own sons is John Carr, again, the second of 11 children. Now, John Carr, largely seen as academically and intellectually gifted, John Carr Monk did well and went through school and taught school in Sampson County for four years. Well, he was gifted enough, could contribute so much that at the, at the encouragement of friends in the medical profession, he left North Carolina to go study medicine, learning and graduating from the University of Pennsylvania. When he returned to North Carolina as Dr. John Carr Monk, or John Monk, John Carr Monk, pardon me, after 1852, having changed more than just his title, he was not to be a copy of his father. Although he was an active Mason like his father, and well, he was also a member of the Whig Party, we, we need to put an asterisk there. See, John, John Carmunk decided to be a servant of the people. His interest was in serving people, not the other way around, with people serving him. He traveled far and wide, sometimes 40 miles in his horse-drawn buggy to attend to patients in Johnston, Wayne, and Sampson counties. And the reason... For the need for the asterisk is the Whig Party. A long history lesson cut short right here. Before there was a Republican Party, before it even existed, there was a Whig Party. And the Whigs were the second in our long-held two-party system, with the Democrats being there since Thomas Jefferson was president. And for a while there, we had a one-party system with just a Democrat party being the only choice until you had a Democratic president named Andrew Jackson that was so, to use teenage parlance, extra, that some Democrats would rather break from their party than support him. 
they went on to form the Whigs, whose platform for most of their existence was just about opposing the Democrats. As a result, they generally had no concrete plans or principles except to oppose the Democrats. So you had Whigs that wanted internal improvements and some that didn't. Some Whigs wanted tariffs and some that didn't. Some wanted a national bank and some that didn't. This party at the same time was home to both future presidents of the United States. Well, one president of the United States named Abraham Lincoln and one future vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. As you can see, some Whigs were pro-slavery and some Whigs were anti-slavery. Sort of like how Archibald Monk of Newton Grove and his fellow Whig and son, John Carr Monk. Both Whigs, both with different perspectives. By the onset of the American Civil War, Archibald owned extensive tracts of land from Clinton all the way to Smithfield. He dabbled in medicine, served in the North Carolina General Assembly, and was firmly opposed to Andrew Jackson, helping to start this Whig party in Sampson County. John Carr, Monk, was recorded as being against slavery, but was also a Whig. He was also very firmly against Southern secession and campaigned hard to keep the North Carolina government in the Union in 1861. He thought that secession would be the death of the South. Tried to keep it from happening. Needless to say, he lost. And John Carmunk, while against slavery, the now Confederate-aligned North Carolina General Assembly still asked him to be a Confederate elector, and he chose to use his medical knowledge in the Confederate Army not to serve the Confederacy, not to serve slavery, but to help the wounded soldiers of both sides, if he could, during this war. And after the war, he tried in his small way to help rebuild the North Carolina economy. And by 1868, three years after the end of the American Civil War, he became the first trustee from Sampson County of the University of North Carolina. His life and the religious landscape of East North Carolina was about to change. He was really just getting started. For many years, Monk was, in, was a devout and active Methodist, donating and serving in his church. But in 1870, the members of his church decided to eject from its congregation all African-American congregates, kick them out of the church because of their skin color. Dr. John Carr Monk protested this strongly, and his belief in the oneness of all people was shaken to the very core by the move. In early 1871, Dr. Monk received a shipment of medical supplies from New York City, still conflicted, not unusual to receive medical supplies from New York City, but what was unusual is wrapped around some supplies, this time I guess to help with the, with the, with the shipping so that things don't break, maybe was a copy of the New York Herald containing a sermon by Roman Catholic Archbishop John McCloskey about the unity of all humans under God as practiced in the Roman Catholic Church. Dr. John Carr Monk of Johnston and Sampson County, about as rural an area as you're going to get at the time, was so impressed by these words and in the way they seemed to reflect his own heart that he wrote a letter to Wilmington 
knowing that there was a Catholic church there, addressed to any Catholic priest requesting further information about Catholic doctrine. He needed to know. He needed to know if he and the church aligned in the way he, he and his home church did not. And how many other ways did they align? His letter reached Bishop James Gibbons in Wilmington. At the time, James Gibbons was serving the North Carolina Diocese in Wilmington. Gibbons recommended some books to Monk, and they opened up a correspondence. Now, Gibbons, if you ever heard the name before, would later be named a cardinal, and his name would grace at least one school in Cardinal Gibbons in Raleigh. And for his part, Dr. James Carr Monk and his family, initially through seeing the mistreatment of African Americans, well, they decided that the alignment was strong enough to leave the Methodist Church and become Catholic. In the middle, between Newton Grove and Smithfield, again, about rural as an area as you're going to get. Now, many people in the area of Newton Grove and the adjoining meadow community were initially hostile to the new, new faith. Not all, but many. But a priest arrived anyway in 1872 to preach, and soon regular visits were made to the community by priests, with crowds getting larger and larger, and eventually large enough to warrant a permanent building and a permanent schoolhouse to be called St. Mark's, which was consecrated by James Gibbons himself. By 1877, this congregation had 100 people, and by 1900, 300 people, which made St. Mark's and Newton Grove the most solidly Catholic rural community in North Carolina. Interesting that Thelonious Monk, the great-grandson of a slave named John Jack, on the Archibald Monk Plantation on the Johnston County border, arrived to play a 10-day stint in 1970. The only such performance of his in this state less than 50 miles away from the place that another monk and 100 years, exactly 100 years earlier in 1870, made a decision that would change religious history in this state permanently. That was a fun one, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, another one coming up pretty much on the heels of this one. Wow. Took a break and boom. <laughs> More stuff came out of the woodwork. Neat stuff. Y'all, until next time, be good. <laughs>